This is The Writer's Voice, new fiction from The New Yorker. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. On this episode of The Writer's Voice, we'll hear Will Mackin read his story, The Lost Troop, from the November 27, 2017 issue of the magazine. Mackin, who retired from the Navy in 2014, will publish his first story collection, Bring Out the Dog, in March. Now here's Will Mackin. The Lost Troop We had a dry spell in Logar. It was December, and the weather was dog shit, so a degree of slowness was expected. But this went beyond slowness. It was like peace had broken out and nobody told us. Nights we'd meet in the ops hut for the mission brief. We'd tune the flat screens to the drones over Ghazni, Oregon, and Coast only to find all three orbiting within the same cloud. We'd listen to static on the UHF. We'd stare at phones that never rang. We could have left it all behind, walked off the outpost into the desert, never to be seen again. We could have created the legend of the lost troop. Instead, we chose some place where we imagined the enemy might be hiding, a compound on the banks of the Helmand River, a break shop in downtown Marja, a cave high in the Hindu Kush mountains, and we ventured out there, hoping for a fight. I thought of the Japanese soldiers on Iwo Jima, who, when their island fell to the Americans, didn't know that it had fallen, who not long after didn't hear that A-bombs had destroyed Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and that their emperor had admitted defeat. Those soldiers hid in tunnels on Iwo for weeks after the war was over, for months even. For them, the fight continued in those dark and narrow spaces until they ran out of food, until they drank the last of their water, until absent the means and or the will to take their own lives, they climbed out of rat holes into the sun to wander warm fields of lava rock and surrender. I wondered if, one night, we'd drop out of the starry sky in our blacked-out helicopters and land near a walled compound in the desert. We'd run toward that compound with the rotor wash at our backs, through the dust cloud that had been kicked up by our arrival, and out the other side. Through a crooked archway in the compound's outer wall, we'd enter the courtyard. And there, among the fig trees and goats, we'd find an American tourist, with a camera slung around his neck. Having served his time in Afghanistan, our fellow American had gone home, fallen in love, got married, and had the two bow-haired daughters now hiding behind his legs. Maybe he'd wanted his girls to see how brightly the stars shone in the desert. Maybe he'd wanted to share with them all the strange places the Army had sent him way back when. I imagine that he'd look over at us and then say, with understanding and remorse, Dudes, war's over. But as far as we knew, it wasn't. Therefore, we met in the ops hut every night at eight. In the absence of new intelligence, we'd review old intelligence. We'd double-check dead ends and re-examine cold cases. Finding nothing mission-worthy, Hal, our troop chief, would open the floor to suggestions. It'd be quiet for a while, as everyone thought. 
Come on, Hal would say. He'd be standing in the middle of the room. We'd be sitting on plywood tables, balancing on busted swivel chairs, leaning against the thin walls. The drones orbiting inside moonlit cumulo nimbi would beam their emerald visions back to us. Lightning would strike 20 miles away and the UHF would crackle. I, for one, didn't have any good ideas to offer. One night, Digger spoke up. Who remembers that graveyard decorated like a used car lot out in Coast? I raised my hand along with a few others. I think we might need to go back there, Digger said. The graveyard in question was on the northern rim of a dusty crater. We patrolled just to the south of it a few weeks prior on an easterly course. The used car lot decorations were plastic strands of multicolored pennants. One end of each strand was tied high in an ash tree that stood at the center of the graveyard. The other ends were staked into the hard ground outside the circle of graves. The graves themselves were piles of stone, shaped like overturned rowboats. I couldn't recall the name of our mission that night, its task and purpose, its outcome, but that graveyard stuck with me. I remembered the pennants snapping in the wind, dust parting around the graves like a current. Digger, who'd been closer to the graveyard than I was, thought that the graves had looked suspicious. He thought they resembled old cellar doors, the type I imagined you'd find outside a farmhouse in Nebraska and run to from darkened fields as a tornado was bearing down. Digger postulated that at least one of those graves was made of fake stones. Styrofoam balls, he suggested to us in the ops hut, painted to look like stones, then glued to a plywood sheet. Digger thought that if we sneaked into that graveyard and pulled open the hypothetical door, we might discover a Taliban nerve center, a bomb factory, or an armory. Digger had no idea what could be down there, but he got a weird feeling walking past the graveyard that night. Good enough for me, Hal said. Let's make it happen. We rode our helicopters, two dual-rotor, minigun-equipped MH-47s northeast from Logar. We sat in mesh jump seats across from one another, roughly ten per side. The MH-47 at altitude stabilized like a swaying hammock. Lube, dripping from the crankcase, smelled like bong water. Beyond the open ramp at the back end of the tubular cargo bay, we watched the night pass by like the scenery in an old movie. The 47s dropped us off in a dry riverbed, three miles east of the graveyard. We patrolled westward under heavy clouds. The clouds carried a powerful static charge while the earth remained neutral. Sparkling dust hovered, and through night vision I saw my brothers walking with me as concentrations of this dust. All I heard as we walked was my own breathing. We connected with the crater's easternmost point, then walked in a counterclockwise direction along its rim until we reached the graveyard. We found the pennants torn and tattered, the ash tree diseased, the graves crooked. None of the stones were made of styrofoam. Not one of the graves was an elaborately disguised entrance to a nefarious subterranean lair, though upon closer inspection I noticed 
that the dust I'd remembered parting around the graves like a current actually funneled into the spaces between the stones. In fact, it seemed to be getting sucked into those spaces, as though there were some sort of void below the graves, which lent a measure of credence to Digger's theory. From the top of one grave, I selected a smooth, round stone about the size of a shot put ball, and I heaved it into the crater. Joe, our interpreter, was right there to scold me. I would expect such disrespectful behavior from the Taliban, he said, but not from you. Joe was Afghani. His real name was Yamaluddin. After the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan in 1980, he'd escaped to the UK with his parents. He was 12 years old at the time. Now, as a middle-aged man, he'd returned to help save his country from ruin. He wore armor on missions, but he carried no weapons. His interpretations of our enemy's muttered words were always clear and precise. He had a bad habit of walking two steps behind me on patrol and closing that distance whenever we made contact with the enemy. Thus, I'd seen conflagrations reflected in the smudged lenses of Joe's glasses. I'd heard him whisper prayers between sporadic detonations. His voice, with its derived British accent and perpetual tone of disappointment, exactly matched that of my beleaguered conscience. So I jumped into the crater after the stone. I found it at the end of a long concave groove in the dust. Turning toward the crater's rim, I saw my boot prints in the dust descending the slope, each as perfect as Neil Armstrong's first step on the moon. On my way back up to the graveyard, I was careful not to disturb those tracks or the flawless groove that had been carved by the stone. I wanted these things to remain, I suppose, in the event that an asteroid should slam into the planet, slopping away the atmosphere, boiling the seas, and instantly ending life on Earth. Our troop, asphyxiated, desiccated, frozen, would lie scattered about the graveyard, preserved in the seamless void of space forever, or at least until other intelligent beings came along and discovered us. Perhaps because those beings existed as thin bars of blue light, incapable of offensive or defensive action, they'd puzzle over our armor, our rifles, our grenades, They'd wonder, especially, why we'd worn such things to a graveyard. There would be no mystery, however, regarding the boot prints in the crater, since they'd know, from the boots still on my feet, that I was the one who'd left them. Furthermore, they'd deduce from the groove that I'd descended into the crater after a stone. Only one particular stone could have cut that groove, and they might find it, among a thousand others, right where I'd returned it, atop the grave just moments before the asteroid struck the earth. But none of that would explain why the stone had been in the crater in the first place. Did one of them throw it in? The curious bars of blue light might ask themselves. The next night, in the ops hut, we still had nothing intelligence-wise. Hal asked for suggestions again. Another hush fell on the troop as we sat thinking. Hal stood in the middle of the room. On the one hand, he loved the war. On the other, he loved us. Green clouds floated by on the flat screens, 
fuzzy static emanated from the UHF. Archie, who a month prior had replaced Yaz, whom we'd lost in a soybean field in Kunduz, stood up from the floor. He pulled a tin of breath mints from his shirt pocket. I probably should have told you guys about this sooner, he said. The tin, Archie explained, had arrived in the mail about two weeks ago. It was sent by Yaz's widow, Connie. I knew Connie from troop barbecues, Halloween parties, and the like. I remembered her once dressed as a cowgirl, dancing in Digger's kitchen. She'd fired cap guns at the ceiling, which made the fluorescent light hazy. Yaz, standing by the bean dip, had watched his wife holster her toy pistols. He'd smiled as she spun an invisible lasso over her head. Roping Yaz, Connie had pulled him in, hand over hand, while he feigned resistance. His breath must have smelled like corn chips. Hers, I imagined, smelled just fine. The tin that Archie showed us in the ops hut contained a handful of Yaz's ashes. Connie asked me to find a good place to spread these around, he said. And I tried, but no place seems good enough. You guys got any ideas? Digger suggested that we climb to the top of Mount Noshak, the tallest peak in Afghanistan, and release Yaz's ashes into a spindrift. Tull proposed a verdant meadow north of Jabad, where he and Yaz once went AWOL to hunt elk. I made an argument for the tiny garden of purple flowers that had grown behind Yaz's tent, where he used to spit out his toothpaste. Hal, however, wanted to return to Kunduz. Kunduz was 400 kilometers north of Logar. The 47s flew higher than usual to get there. Frost formed on the windows, the engines whined, the rotors slipped, and the helicopter wobbled as if we were balancing at the end of a very long pole. I almost hoped that something would go wrong. Nothing catastrophic, of course. Just a low oil light, or engine temperature creeping into the red, something that would force us to land short and reconsider. I didn't want to see that field in Kunduz again, with its dark puddles reflecting the stars, its soybean shoots glowing white. I didn't want to smell its fertilized tang. But nothing went wrong. We touched down on the western edge of the field, right where we touched down before, opposite the ditch that had given me so much trouble. We'd first landed in that field on a clear night in late September. Jupiter had been the focal point of a crescent moon. The ditch where we knew the enemy was hiding was east of our position and outside small arms range. I thought at the time that there were no more than half a dozen Taliban in that ditch. I'd based that estimate partly on how the shrubbery had quaked when they scurried around behind it. I considered as well the frequency of AK fire which from that safe distance sounded like movie projectors running out of film. For six Taliban wallowing in a ditch, I figured that a pair of thousand-pound bombs with delayed fuses ought to do the trick. A combination of ash and sisu grew in that ditch. The aforementioned shrubbery tangled the spaces between the trees. I brought two jets in from the north in trail formation, the first bomb ignited every tree and shrub. The second launched burning trees like moonshots. 
I turned to my right, expecting to find Hal. Instead, I found Joe, hands in pockets, armored belly protruding. The burning trench was reflected in his dirty glasses. Hal appeared from behind me. You done, he asked. What remained of the shrubbery was still, and the AKs had fallen silent. Yes, I said. We spread ourselves the length of the field for mop-up, then walked toward the ditch. Stars jiggled in the puddles. The mud smelled like turpentine. The soybean shoots resembled those albino creatures which live in the Atlantic's deepest trench. Hal walked next to me. Yaz walked five men past Hal. The machine gun that Yaz carried weighed as much as the front axle of a Sentra. Its rounds were the size of soup cans. As we stepped into small arms range, Tull whistled like a bird in warning. Seconds later, a Taliban popped out of the ditch. The barrel of his AK, it seemed, was bent. The majority of his volley curved skyward. After Yaz fell, more Taliban came out of the ditch, dozens in fact. We turned them around quickly, then we fell back, dragging Yaz. Joe was right behind me, breathing hard. Hal called for Kazavak, even though Yaz was already dead. Maybe he didn't want us to think that he wouldn't have done the same thing for us. Maybe he wanted us to believe that, as far as he was concerned, none of us would ever be dead. Or maybe he just wanted us to fight and not to worry about it. I called out to every jet in the sky. The first wave arrived just as the Kazavak was lifting off with Yaz. I brought the jets down in a clockwise spiral. I had them toss everything they had, 500,000, 2,000 pounders, into the ditch. A second wave of jets joined the first, then a third, and a fourth. I bombed the ditch until the mud puddles in the soybean fields steamed, until the soybean shoots themselves melted, until it seemed as though I were standing in the ditch and bombing the field. The soybean field looked no different in December. The ditch was unchanged, too, although the trees and the shrubbery were gone. I stood in the same place that I'd stood while controlling the jets back in September. The rest of the troop walked into the field behind Archie. They formed a circle around him at the spot where Yaz was killed. Archie took a knee and pulled a tin from his pocket. He opened the lid and tapped the side of the tin with his finger. I didn't want to see the ashes fall, so I turned around and there was Joe. It wasn't your fault, he said. Time passed mysteriously in the clouds. Unlike when the drones could see the ground and a haystack or a cow would spin around the flat screen like the second hand of a clock, we had no idea how long we sat watching the spinning clouds. Meanwhile, the UHF clicked like something radioactive. This was the night after Kunduz, or the night after our return to Kunduz. We still had no intelligence. Sitting cross-legged on the floor, I tried peace on for size. I felt proud that I'd fought, but also glad that the war was over. Hal asked for suggestions, and Joe raised his hand. Hal said, You don't need to raise your hand. I had a teacher in primary school who used to hit my knuckles with the ruler, Joe said. I would like to pay him a visit. I had a teacher like that, Hal said. Me too, Digger said, and the rest of us nodded, remembering. 
Joe had last seen his teacher at his old school in the town of Gawas in Wardak province in 1979. Joe had been 11 at the time. The teacher had seemed ancient to Joe back then. In hindsight, however, Joe figured that his teacher had been no older than 30, which meant that there was a good chance in 2008 that the teacher was still alive. He lived in a cabin near a forest, Joe remembered, though he couldn't say exactly where. Joe assured us, though, that he could find the cabin if we could find his old school. We'd never had reason to patrol through Gawas, therefore we had no maps of tactical value. Digger, who always planned our routes, turned to the computer that contained the satellite imagery. Our imagery of Gawas was both stale and irregular, half of it dated from the winter of 2003, the other half from the spring of 2005. The school, Joe said, was a stone building on the eastern bank of a river. It was situated just north of a bend in the river that was shaped like a question mark. Hal, Joe, and I stood behind Digger as he searched Gawas for a river with a question mark. He found it in an image that had been captured by a satellite on a May afternoon in 2005. Digger zoomed in, and we saw the river's banks overflowing with snowmelt. Sunlight sparkled in the eddies. Reeds grew from stagnant pools. Digger scrolled northbound in search of the school. The imagery changed to winter. The river turned dark as slate. A hundred yards north of the question mark, on the river's eastern bank, we discovered a stone foundation poking through the ice. Joe thought it was too small to be the ruins of his old school, but then he realized that it had to be. From the school's foundation, Joe guided Digger along the path that the teacher had walked on his way home. It ran north along the river for a snowy mile. Then the imagery switched back to spring, and the path cut east into a warm field of grass. Joe, the student, used to follow the teacher at a safe distance across this field. Crouching in the tall grass, he would fantasize about leaping out and knocking his teacher down. More than revenge, though, he'd wanted to study his teacher. He kept his eyes on his desk in class all day, hoping to stay out of trouble. The walk home was his chance to actually see the man. Joe described him as tall and prematurely gaunt. He said that the teacher had worn a dark robe for the walk home in winter. In spring, he remembered butterflies rising in the teacher's wake when he crossed the field. Keep going, Joe said to Digger. Digger continued scrolling across the sunlit field to a snow-covered forest. The image of the forest had been captured on a January evening in 2003, Shadows cast by the tall, bare trees looked like the minute hands of a clock, all showing ten past the hour. Halfway through the forest, the satellite imagery ran out. The computer screen turned black. He lives just on the other side of that forest, Joe said. How far? Hal asked. Joe touched a spot on the dark computer screen. Here. The four of us looked at that spot. I'm thinking call-out, Digger said to Hal. Callouts were best in unknown situations, like we didn't know whether or not the cabin existed or how big it might be. We didn't know who, other than the teacher, might be hiding inside 
or how prepared he or they might be to mount a defense. To mitigate the risks posed by these unknowns, a call-out would proceed in stages. The 47s would drop us off outside the cabin, beyond small arms range. If there was fire from the cabin, we'd keep our distance and I'd call in an airstrike. If not, we'd run toward the cabin and flank it on two sides. Digger would throw a flashbang through a window pane. Light would tear through the cabin. Bangs would echo in the night. Once all was dark and quiet again, Joe would read a statement into a bullhorn, informing the startled occupants that we were coalition forces there to protect the rights of the Afghan people. Yeah, Hal said. Let's go with the call out, but no flashbang. And Joe, I want you to say something different tonight. Hal chose a line from the end of a song by Pink Floyd called Another Brick in the Wall, Part 2. The song opens with the lyric, We don't need no education, and goes on to denounce teachers as repressive and cynical. The song ends in a riot. As the students tear down their school, a teacher's voice can be heard above the din, shouting lessons such as wrong, do it again, and stand still, laddie. Hal chose one such lesson for Joe to shout through the bullhorn. Joe practiced it on the helicopter ride out to Gawas. If you don't eat your meat, you can't have any pudding. No, Hal interrupted. You need more fear in your voice. Joe and Digger sat on one side of the helicopter, Hal and I on the other. Night parted around us and mended in our wake. I don't think fear is the right word, I said. It's Joe's teacher, Digger said. Let him say it however he wants. The teacher in the song is staring down an angry mob, Hal said. He can't just say the words. I think my teacher is more crazy than afraid, Joe said. All right, Hal said. Let's hear it again. The windows in the MH-47 were made of plexiglass. They were shaped like salad bowls. When you looked through them, things on the outside appeared either close and blurry or far away and blurry. There was a sweet spot in the lens, however, where something would appear perfectly magnified. Thus, as we banked over the highway that ran between Kandahar and Kabul, I saw a bleary-eyed trucker behind the wheel. As we floated over the mountains into Wardak, I saw a waterfall cascading into a crystalline lake. And when we turned above the ruins of Joe's old school, I imagined the building as it once was, stone walls, slate roof, and leaded glass windows. We sped over the field of tall grass and over the woods at treetop level. The rotors beat louder as we pulled into a hover. We touched down on either side of the teacher's cabin without taking fire. The 47s lifted off behind us, and rotor wash shoved us through clumps of dry grass and over warm boulders. Archie, carrying Yaz's massive gun, ran ahead of me, while Joe, with his red bullhorn, ran behind. The teacher's cabin was the size of a one-car garage. A curl of smoke rose from its stone chimney. A neatly stacked woodpile stood behind it. Empty rabbit traps leaned against a wall. We formed lines on either side of the cabin, and taking my position, I saw myself reflected in a dark blue window. We stood, still and quiet, outside the teacher's cabin as the 47s descended into a valley. Soon enough, their noise became a memory, then that memory faded. A cold wind rustled the grass, 
Our breath rose in thick clouds. I imagined the teacher lying awake in bed, wondering if he'd only dreamed of helicopters landing outside. Hal nodded at Joe, and Joe raised the bullhorn. If you don't eat your meat, you can't have any pudding. How can you have any pudding if you don't eat your meat? Joe's message echoed. A match flared inside the cabin, turning the windows orange. The teacher emerged in a nightcap, carrying a lit candle on a brass candlestick. He squinted at us, standing in the darkness. Digger slapped away the candle. Hal stepped on the flame. I zip-tied the old man's wrists, and Joe forced him to kneel on the hard ground. What have I done? he asked, like all the others. We didn't answer. Instead, we left him, knees bleeding, to think about it, while we pushed into his cabin to see how he lived. That was Will Mackin, reading his story, The Lost Troop. This is his third story in the magazine. On the New Yorker Fiction Podcast, we invite writers to choose stories from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, Lauren Groff reads In These Islands by Shirley Hazard. You can subscribe to that and other New Yorker podcasts by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this podcast by rating and reviewing The Writer's Voice in Apple Podcasts on iTunes. Our theme music is by Jordan Batiste and Ross Michaels of North American Plastics. The Writer's Voice is produced by Jill Duboff of NewYorker.com. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.